Hi, my name's Paul. And my name is Rhys. And you're listening to No Garnish. Boom, out yeah, of the park. that's it. <laughs> Nothing else we have down. <laughs> but that bit. That's what you need. Masters. <laughs> So, um, hello everyone. Today we're recording from my studio, which is in a building called New England House, right in the centre of Brighton. And um, because of the traffic sounds, we're kind of uh, recording in the studio cupboard. <laughs> yeah, it's got a real New York loft vibe to it. It has, doesn't it? Like, like we've just kind of moved in and, uh, you know, everything's kind of been decorated. I like it. I, it's like we're on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of holidays yeah. do you go? Yeah, yeah, warehouse no. holidays. <laughs> like Airbnb. Like, look at this lovely warehouse that you can stay. Like, Paul sat next to a ladder. That I've got a nice leading... aluminium ladder next to me, and um, which is leading... Where's it going? It's going to the mezzanine. Which... Mezzanine. The oh, mezzanine. That. That's fancy. It is fancy, which, is, which has got lots of cardboard boxes on it. Even more. There's like literally like above us, there's a whole massive towering inferno of <laughs> cardboard boxes. Yeah, a naked flame would be probably forever. <laughs> and I've noticed just to my left, there's a impaled dinosaur. Yeah, well. yeah, yeah. And it really is right up its jacksy. It's right up its jacksy. Someone came in. No wonder it's wearing that expression. Well, someone said that. They came in and they were like, no wonder why it's so pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> so Paul, what are we drinking this week? At your request, this week we are drinking a cocktail of my own creation oh. called Life on Mars. And yeah, I, I feel like the last couple of episodes, the drinks that we've had, you found a little challenging. Yeah. A little a little challenging. Yeah, they, the, the sidecar wasn't your thing, was it? Uh, no, that was Sugared wasn't. rim. You like the sugar rim? I like rim. the sugar rim. I always like a sugared rim. <laughs> Let's not go there again. <laughs> That's a whole episode. I love tonguing a sugared rim. And last one we did was the Kingston Sound System, which you liked eventually. I think I talked you into liking the Kingston Sound System. Yeah, I think the, the Hogo was too much at the beginning. But but the Hogo kind of like leveled out as the ice melted. And by the second one, I was loving it. But yeah. I don't know if that's just because I was drunk. And if you have no idea what we're talking about with the word hogo, you're just going to have to go and listen to that episode. I'm yeah, not going definitely. to explain it again. Yeah. yeah but you yeah. loved that word as well, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to fit it into everyday life. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, so today we're doing, um, we're drinking these Life on Mars cocktails, which is, is one of the first cocktails I made myself. I'm really glad that we're talking about, you know, one of your cocktails that you've made yourself, that you've crafted yourself. Because, you know, uh, knowing you going through this cocktail journey that you've been through for several years. And, you know, for viewers listening. Um, viewers some, listening. For viewers listening. <laughs> for, what did I say? And for listeners viewing. <laughs> and for listeners. Oh, yeah. For viewers listeners. listening. Listeners viewing. <laughs> I like it. Oh, it's like a proverb. For for you at home listening, something that's quite amazing about Paul's cocktails is that he's got a cocktail book that he's handwritten and it's like The Last Crusade or something, you know, in years to come that will be in a crypt somewhere. You know, it will be dusty and and people will be like looking for it, scavenging for it, you know what I mean? And there'll be a knight sort of standing guard by it. But it's incredible that's that you've nice. handwritten this huge like kind of cocktail Bible and this was one of my the first cocktails that you had made me actually uh, many years ago many years ago and um it always has stuck in my mind because the name of it and also that it had lots of glitter on the top and <laughs> yeah although yeah. it's not my flavors i love it and it really right. hits all the notes in your on, in your mouth you know it's lovely it was a bit of a fluke when i created this one I, i'll be honest i didn't really know what i was doing i had an idea in my head of what i wanted this cocktail to taste like and it took me a really long time to get there i really had very little cocktail knowledge so i didn't know what i was doing wrong or how to make it go right it was a lot of trial and error that's exciting isn't it like 
it's how you learn stuff, isn't it? How you learn stuff. Yeah. And, I, and I think that can be some of the most exciting part of when you're on a creative journey. And when you're, you know, uh, when I think about like my own you know, art practice, when, you know, when, when learning to create my own style, you have to sometimes like copy a bit of someone else's style. You have to kind of create your own formula, don't you? Yeah. And there's a lot of trial and error. Sometimes it can be quite maddening because you make a lot of mess. And I can imagine you're kind of making probably some drinks that were pretty horrendous. Well, back in the early days. In the early days of just kind of going, well, what does that and that do? Oh, plenty of that. And yeah, awful things. Right, right. Yeah. Kind of, kind of <laughs> leaping out of the glass going, ah, eat me, <laughs> drink me. Hideous things. I started, I just started making recipes. I would just find cocktail recipes and make them and didn't understand how anything worked. Okay. I was just following recipes. Right. I didn't have any knowledge of why things worked or how they worked. And that's where I was at when I was making this. Oh, I, 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 had, I had loads of ingredients and I'm thinking, well, okay, I think I want that ingredient and that one and that one. Right. But didn't know how to proportion them. Right. And, you know, when those ones weren't enough, didn't know where else to turn. And so I'll just try anything. Oh, right. Okay. So this really came about by accident rather than design. Because okay. other cocktails that I created at that time have not aged well. <laughs> they're, oh, really? no, I, they're awful. I, I, I kind of, some of those I've still got. The cocktail book that you mentioned, my recipe cocktail book. And I'm on, I'm on the third volume of that now. I've, oh, wow. Yeah, there's two volumes that I'd filled up. Wow. And have archived. Wow. Just in case there's something in them I might want to go back to. Yeah. So I'm on the third volume of that book. So if I go back to some of the older ones that are in the old versions of that book. Right. They're so bad. I, they're, they're awful. Just embarrassing. Right. Just embarrassing. <laughs> And so this one, the fact that this... Like, people really like this cocktail. Yeah, it's a delicious cocktail. I mean, how would you describe it? I, w I would describe it as a bitter sour. It's okay. a bit like a paper plane, but I made this before I'd ever had a paper plane, and paper planes are now one of my favourite cocktails. And, and is a paper plane quite a renowned sour, bitter sour cocktail? Yeah, yeah, it's a modern classic, the paper okay. plane, yeah. A bitter sour, which I, I think is just my own category, that I put the paper plane in, and this life on mars to some degree where you've got a spirit you've got citrus juice which is the sour part you've got something that sweetens it and normally that's all a sour is but with this and say with the paper plane you've also then got some amaro you've got a bitter element in there as well okay what's, what's amaro italian bitter liqueurs or aperitifs oh, okay so this cocktail has two it has aperol and campari Oh, Which right. are kind of the two of the most prevalent, common okay. ones. They're, they're not the most bitter by far, but I kind of look at the proportions of this cocktail and think it shouldn't really work, but right. it does. And I think that's what I really like about this cocktail. I would say it's like a wrestle. You know, I'm kind of thinking at the moment of like, <laughs> quite homoerotic, of the kind of wrestlers, like American <laughs> wrestlers. Like It's kind of a weird analogy because um, it's actually a very delicate and a very um, cosmic cocktail. But the idea of like how flavours wrestle together and it creates a very pleasing flavour. And I like that. Because you've got the kind of like the sharpness of the line, you've got the bitterness of the ingredients, but then you've got that sweetness coming up through it. And it kind of makes a very interesting journey. And it's interesting that you call it Life on Mars because that, you know, instantly makes me think about journey. You know, and then you're talking about how the creation of this is a journey in itself, you know. And it was inspired by Life on Mars, the song. Of course. You know, completely inspired by that. And I wanted to create something that was bittersweet and red. That was basically what I had in my head was, it's got to be bittersweet, it's got to be red, and I've got a very particular flavour that I'm aiming for. But like I said, it wasn't It wasn't through expertise, it was trial and error, right. and more by accident than design. But that's, that often is the kind of the key for, you know, a beautiful mess, isn't it? You know, some of the best pieces of work I've made over the years have been completely unexpected. And actually, when I try and control what I'm making too much from the start, often what I end up with is quite predictable and boring. For things just to kind of happen as you go along, I think is the essence of true creativity. Often that comes at the beginning of our journey more because the more we know, the more we can predict, 
the more honed our skills become and inevitably what we make then can become more predictable and that can be a good thing but you know sometimes with our creative you know with like my creative practice at the moment you know I'm learning 3D design and animation because with my 2D stuff I can make my predictable results and I'm wanting to inject new life into my creativity Mm -hmm. you know so I think um, so it's kind of interesting really thinking back to one of your how one of your early cocktails and actually interesting that you've said a lot of your cocktails that you've made from that period haven't survived that this is the one kind of one of the flowers from that that uh, is is true and tested and it and it still holds up now yeah i'm amazed amazed. (laughs) considering how bad a lot of the other ones were right yeah yeah a fluke a fluke but that idea that idea of um an unexpected outcome kind of wanted that to be one of the themes of this episode because life on mars has a couple of associations for me aside from the drink so it's the david bowie song obviously and there's an interesting story behind oh, okay that, right which links into the theme of unexpected outcomes all oh, right okay And also the general topic of life on Mars. Not so much life on Mars now, scientific knowledge now. More the idea of is there life on Mars and where that comes from. Oh, okay. So I was going to tell you a little bit about that. some that. Some of this you're probably going to know. Some of it might be a revelation to you. Okay. Well, it's interesting that, you know, uh, you've picked David Bowie as well because David Bowie is kind of so universal, really, and such an amazing icon, really. Probably one of the greatest musicians of modern time, really. Kind of yeah. maybe a little bit like our kind of equivalent to Beethoven or something, I, mm. I think, you know. So why did you call it Life on Mars? Is You know, what is the sort of underpinning choice for that? I think I was just wanting to create a cocktail that had something to do with David Bowie. That was I can't, I see I can't remember if this was created before he died or after. As a kind of um, uh, like as a uh, memorial to him. Yeah, it's kind of uh, quite freaky with David Bowie's death though, because something that I thought was interesting about him is that he planned released albums to come out after he died. So mm. his music continued on after he died. So I think it's quite hard to sort of pinpoint when he died other than looking up on Google because it's kind of like his music came out after. I remember when he died was when I actually just moved into the studio about six, seven years ago. I think he made this after he died. I remember I called it Ziggy Stardust at first. And that made sense actually, the Ziggy Stardust, because um, for people uh, listening, uh, the great thing, one of the things I love about um, Paul Scott Tell is he puts edible glitter on the surface of it, so you get this kind of crazy cosmic swirl on top. It's a glam rock cocktail. It's really glam rock. Yeah. But it's um, it definitely like leaves quite an Im- a visual impression. And I think what we've talked about in previous episodes is that the visual appeal of cocktails is a very important part of the theatre of it. And I loved the glitter that I found which was I think the name of it was Rainbow Glacier oh right okay Edible Glitter or something like that sounds like a uh, that sounds like a prog rock band it does Rainbow Glacier that's that'd be a great name for it band. would be wouldn't it and then I kind of looked up that Ziggy Stardust or is there already a Ziggy Stardust cocktail and there's loads everyone has had the idea of making a David Barry cocktail and everyone has called it Ziggy Stardust right so right I, I went okay well I'm going to call it something else and it looks like a cosmic journey it looks like you're landing on Mars almost like the lakes the 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 lakes of Mars you know the um the mysterious lakes that you know everyone's talked about over years that have never actually been there yeah you know the fantasy version of Mars rather than the arid desert version <laughs> the reality of yeah, Mars yeah, which yeah, is yeah, just yeah. seriously disappointing every every time they send like you know a 10 billion pound probe or whatever it always comes back with shattering disappointment doesn't it <laughs> of like yeah there is just dust <laughs> it's just dust yeah so yeah I, I prefer the name Life on Mars and actually you know uh, it's kind of quite a quintessential Bowie song as well isn't it you know yeah you know he certainly didn't set out to write his signature song Right, okay. Oh, so that was a mistake in itself then. Yeah. So the story behind the song Life on Mars starts with the story behind My Way. Right. So that song, the melody for that song, the music for My Way was another song. Right. My Way isn't an original song. It's an original lyric. Right. 
But that melody was a French song, and I can't pronounce French titles. Okay. But it translates as, as usual. The music is exactly the same as My Way, but the lyric was French, and it's about a love affair that's gone cold. And the narrator talking about this and saying how they're just, they're going on with their life as usual and, you know, putting a brave face on it. Right. And that was a hit. That song was a hit in France. Oh, right, okay. The American singer-songwriter Paul Anker bought the rights to that song, got rid of the French lyrics, right. wrote his own, right. and that's my way. Right. And, and then gave it to Frank Sinatra. Okay. You know, it became Frank Sinatra's signature song. So at the same time as all that was going on, David Bowie had also had his eye on this French song, and he'd written his own lyrics, and his song was called Even a Fool Learns to Love. And so he was planning to use the melody and his own lyrics, and then couldn't, because right. Paul Anker right. had bought the song and turned it into my way. Right, right. And so not being able to do anything with his idea, he then wrote Life on Mars as a parody of Frank Sinatra's My Way. Right. So Life in Mars was intended as a piss take. Right, right, as like a sort of piece of satire, really. Yeah. And when you know that, when you know that it's his version of My Way, right. both songs have exactly the same structure. They have this kind of verse that starts quietly, you know, it's a god-awful small affair, and then it builds up. And yeah. My Way has exactly that same structure. Each verse starts quietly. And it's got like a piano kind of like toodling along, isn't it? Yeah. Like at the beginning. And then it builds up and then it comes back down again. It's all... It tumbles down again, yes. It's all kind of all it's, over the place. It's so operatic, isn't it? It's so beautifully constructed it really it? is yeah. yeah it is and actually like before this podcast we listened to them didn't we to kind of remind myself of the songs and kind of see the comparisons and it's so fascinating like hearing them like I say once you know that and you hear those two songs it's startling how similar they are in yeah. a way just, just the levels of irony as well, because Frank Sinatra's signature song, I Did It My Way, well, he didn't write it, and it's from someone else's song. <laughs> yeah. And then David Bowie's signature song uh, was a piss take of that. Yeah. Like, there's a whole kind of interconnected irony all yeah, surrounding yeah. that. But it's kind of, like, quite amazing when you look at David Bowie's version, because it's just bonkers like David Bowie is, isn't it? Like, the kind of, like, the lyrics, like, caveman, look at those cavemen go, it's a freaky show you know like what's that all about I always loved that lyric and I found out what that is David Bowie said that it's about a young girl who is seeing this exciting wonderful world that's being portrayed to her through film and television right but she can't reach it it's beyond her grasp is David Bowie kind of maybe drawing from his own childhood maybe of seeing all of this sort of stuff happening that's a good point well like America was very much the exciting place then wasn't it yes. rock and roll yeah. and England most of its kind of its rock and rollers were imitations of American rock and rollers. Yeah, yeah. They weren't kind of doing their own thing. They were. Just, it was just like the British Elvis people, like Tommy Steele and is it Marty Wilde maybe? But England was still a pretty dull place. And also, like people I think... were still wearing bowler hats in the city. You know, yeah. that's where England was at. Lunch, swinging London wasn't swinging yet. Yes, and actually, yeah. like my my uh, mum, who was at art school in the sixties, um, you know. I'm saying to her like hey but you know um when she caught me smoking a, a joint for the first time when i was a teenager and i was like my my actual response was to her was like hey but you were at our school in the 60s you know and my mom just turned around and she was like yeah i got drunk i just got drunk a lot i didn't do any of that <laughs> you know like almost kind of like you know and and, and and you know they dressed very smart everyone was very smart yeah you know actually the kind of the hippie technicolor all of that sort of stuff was actually more late 60s you know actually very early 60s was all very like like um, very smartly dressed actually people were weren't they like yeah. you know mini skirts had just come out so that was the kind of the raciest thing in the UK at the time I think from what my mum said you know mm. if you wore a mini skirt oh my god oh yeah like yeah, that yeah. was a rebellion but I think like contextually historically America was booming with its economy so much they were kind of seen as the victors of the war but also they had this kind of 60 year debt from us from Britain to repay them 
all the reparations for the war from everything that we borrowed from them. You know, war is a massive money maker. And American culture had this kind of huge explosion, didn't it, with entertainment, Hollywood, and it was being exported out in the world. And it's quite, I find that really fascinating, the contextual kind of history of what country at the time is exporting their culture out. And since then, we've had many countries like, you know, Japan in the sort of 80s and 90s was a massive exporter of their culture, wasn't it? Yeah, with like manga and everything. Yeah. Every country has its kind of time, doesn't it? And I suppose Britain's was just a little bit later, wasn't it, really, with the sort of 60s, 70s? Beatles, wasn't it? Once you had the Beatles, then you had the British invasion and Britain, yes. Britain selling its bands to America. But they, you know, the Beatles were inspired by American. Of course. Acts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that line, which I've always loved, it's such a great line, isn't it? Um, look at those cavemen go. Yeah. It's a freaky show. It's a great line. And the whole of that song has beautiful imagery, you know, Mickey Mouse has grown up a cow but the, I found out the origins of the cavemen line and so around that time late 50s you might know this song this is, there was an old song called Alley Oop kind of Alley Oop Doop Alley Oop and it had lyrics but all I can right. remember is the alley bit right right but the band who did that were called the Hollywood Argyles right they were a one hit wonder and their shtick was they dressed up as cavemen right right like right. proper like comic book right cavemen and right. that was their act uh, but it was a huge hit that just being way more exciting right than anything England was producing right right look at how cr- these crazy California Hollywood band dressing up like cavemen <laughs> look at those cavemen go it's a freaky show it's a freaky show yeah, and so yeah, yeah that, that line is a reference to that yeah, that, yeah. That, that one hit wonder and just how how much more exciting and interesting that was than anything that's going on in England yeah yeah, and yeah, yeah. In, your, in the humdrum life of, of the girl with the mousy hair interesting that you know one of David Bowie's signature songs was a piss take or not just that it's a piss take but it's like a riposte it's done out of spite he's, out of spite it's because he's pissed off <laughs> right right that, that he can't use that piece of music the song that he wanted to and yeah. it's like and I don't like what you've done with it <laughs> so here's me my version yeah yeah and, and I'm going to do it much better yeah and fuck you yeah yeah it's a big fuck you to Frank Sinatra and good because I don't like Frank Sinatra yeah. I find like everyone goes on about old big blue eyes or whatever like wasn't he like involved in the mafia or something I don't know I, I, I've heard many conflicting stories I really about I don't know I don't know what, any about that how great he was and what a bastard he was and <laughs> right. how nice he was I, I've heard quite a lot of nasty things oh really but he was he was a great artist he was a great interpreter of songs I guess, I guess. I just don't like that whole schmooshy, schmooshy music. I call it like smooshy, smooshy music, like Michael Bublé. Yeah. Like, it's all like very like, uh-huh. it's all very sort of, um, it's also so frustratingly smug. I can't stand Christmas songs that do it. <laughs> I, they, they send me to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm in a if I'm in a store and it's Christmas and you've got that like and maybe the snowbells ringing and I'm, I'm just like fucking hell I'm literally got my head in the fireplace. <laughs> See, I, I don't mind a fair bit of that. Oh, do you? You I've like got, it? I've got my lines. Yeah, I like a fair bit of that. Yeah, he just reminds me of a Frank Sinatra thing. So there's there's a Frank Sinatra with Count Basie album Sinatra Live at the Sands. Right, and linking this to the Rat Pack, you know, got Sammy Davis Jr. and oh, who's the other Dean Martin? Right, those guys are really funny. Right, and that was right. their thing that they can sing and they're really funny. Oh right, so they could get an audience like laughing, like it was like kind of a one-man show like you have the comedy and the singing all in one person yeah and Frank Sinatra really wanted to also be like that right and so on that album there's a long bit where he does like a stand-up comedy routine right but 
the whole tone of that comedy routine he does is really mean. Right. That he's just taking the piss out of Sammy Davis Jr. Right. And Dean Martin. Right. And he's not funny. Right. He wanted to be everything. And he was a better right. singer, right. I think, than those guys. But he wasn't the better comedian. And right. I, and I think it's a real tell how mean his jokes were. And I think that says something about maybe an aspect of his character. I think a person's sense of humour shows a lot about their character, what they find funny. You know, a person can have quite a surreal sense of humour. They can have a dark sense of humour. You can also have a nasty sense of humour. And I find that interesting yeah. with RuPaul's Drag Race because they always have a uh, a roast, don't they? Actually, I find like the American roast like it is a very much thing that I've noticed with American comedy. The whole roast thing is a kind of a part of, I think, from an, from a Brit looking in, a big part of American culture. Can you deliver a really good roast and can you take a good roasting? I think a lot of um, presidents and stuff, they, they have that, you know, can they can they be a good sport? And I think we have that also in British culture. And that would be like, oh, can you be a good sport? Um, can you laugh at yourself? But I think, uh, you know, on RuPaul's Drag Race... I, I don't like roasts. I, they can be really awkward. Like on RuPaul's drag race it's really interesting because they always have the roast round and you can tell the really good comedians because yeah they, they will say things that are a little bit mean because that's the whole point you know and it's a very very fine line it's a and it requires a lot of kind of uh sense sensibility actually i think you have to be quite emotionally sensitive in order to do it well and maybe he just didn't have that yeah he just he, he or maybe he wanted maybe he was so annoyed that he just wasn't funny. Yeah, I guess what you find with those kind of comedians of that time, they would send up themselves. So Sammy Davis would send up himself. Dean Martin, you know, the whole drunk act. He's sending up himself. Right. The last thing Sinatra would do is send up himself. He's not laughing at himself. Right, right, right. He's laughing at them. Bit Trump like. He doesn't have a sense of humour about himself. About himself. And I think that's the hardest thing, actually. I think if. And actually, when I'm thinking about RuPaul's roasting, the queens who go in deep and it's not very funny, they're the ones that can't laugh at themselves, actually. Mm. And maybe that's the, the thing. If you can laugh at yourself, then you're better at doing those roasts because um, you can dish it out and take it as well. You know, that's another phrase, isn't it? Or you can dish it out, but you can't take it. You know, all this is making me think. Have you you seen Documental? No. I started watching it the other night and just couldn't stop. It's this Japanese show, Japanese show where they lock 10 Japanese comedians in a room for six hours. Right. And whoever laughs is eliminated. Right, right. Oh my god! And it's really weird. <laughs> That's so Japanese. It's so Japanese, and the humour is so Japanese yeah, as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what they're doing—it's really—it's kind of grotesque. Right. I, I was watching season two. I can't even remember how it appears. There's one female comedian and somehow they're all sitting around a table. Right. And then the next thing I know, there's a big pair of her knickers. Right. She's a large lady. There's a big pair of her knickers on the table and they're all talking about that. And then she's got a bottle of breast milk, her breast milk, that one of them is drinking. Right. (laughs) And I'm is this funny? (laughs) This is just weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Japanese TV, like, yeah. it's always just bonkers. Like, something about the, a, a, a culture's, a country's entertainment, and particularly through the guise of TV, says so much. Like, I would love to kind of transport myself into someone else's body, like another person's uh, sort of being, and see what British TV looks like to them because yeah, we've got yeah. we've got bonkers things like take me out and you know like on anything on itv which is just so bloody colorful which i never see and so like yeah, yeah. you know like you came around my house didn't you it's the only time i've seen itv in the last show. few years is at your house when you've got <laughs> that on and it's like stepping into an alternate universe that I don't like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah. I don't like it. And like people press a button and it's like, and then something comes out the floor and it's like... Yeah, there's something very weird about sort of Saturday night family TV and there always has been. There's always a touch of sort of end of the pier about it. Yeah. It gives me the fear. It does, doesn't it? And I think like Japanese TV, like there's almost like a bit of cruelty. Cruelty, I was about to say. Like, there's a cruel streak They to almost seem to sort of 
uh, their humour, like when you look, because oh, the the immediate thing that I was thinking about, there's a game show where people go into like a lift and then they're filmed in slow motion as as uh, completely unaware that the lift is a trapdoor and just releases them into like a dark pit. And the whole funny thing is like, look how terrified they are. That's the show. <laughs> and that's the show. Oh my god! Like, can you imagine that? Can you imagine how terrifying that would be? Just that's like. That's like TV Go Home. Yeah. yeah. So TV Go Home was like one of Charlie Brooker's first things. It right. Was, it was this spoof TV stuff. Right. TV listings like the Radio Times. But, uh, but all right. the programs were really fucked up and cruel. Right. But lots of them have now been made and surpassed in their weirdness and cruelty. Oh, really? I was going to say, yeah. like, uh, you know, one of the biggest hits in the UK is... Um, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. And I can't watch that shit because it's just like, yeah. it's like, oh, eat a whole plate of bugs. It's almost like junior school. Yeah. Like, oh, eat a kangaroo testicle. Oh, looks revolting. Oh, like, yeah, go on, eat, eat this live grub. And, and I, I just find it weird. I find it weird that that's entertainment. I don't know. I find it quite interesting dissecting kind of, you know, like thinking about like American humour and then thinking about Japanese humour and kind of, you know, like European I find like a lot of Asian humour tends to be very um, slapstick, very physical, mm. and I find it interesting that Mr Bean is really popular in in <laughs> Asia. You know, yeah. because it's so it makes, slapstick. It still makes sense, and, and there's, there's, you don't need the language. There's either. no language it's, to it. Yeah. yeah, it's all physical. It's all. Yeah, and I and I guess so. Like you know, from what I gather, a lot of Asian comedy is is very physical humour. But then I would love to know, like, so if anyone's listening from another country, I would love to know what they think of British humour. Like, what is the thing about British humour that is characteristic and, and that they notice? And I always find it interesting when Americans talk about British humour. Is there a kind of um, an embarrassing streak, a kind of awkward, embarrassing streak to British comedy that doesn't translate well or does? I don't know. There's know also it, something that's quite depressing about our sense of humour. Yeah, there is like, we, we seem to true. revel in depression. I think yeah. I think like Britain is can be quite a depressing country in the sense that, because I mean, I think like a, a, often a country's weather dictates a lot of their culture and I think the reason yeah. why Britain has a very very like interchangeable weather system which means that we're always expecting the worst we're always expecting that <laughs> lovely sunny picnic that we've organised for two or three weeks for it just to be torrential rain that's and true. it's in the middle of the summer you yeah know? that's true we like, are always expecting the worst <laughs> we, we are and I think our comedy is always expecting the worst we're like, like the, the, the hero in our comedy always fails <laughs> Yeah, 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 and is at the bottom. The, they never get the promotion in the end season. Yeah. They never get the girl. They <laughs> they always end up broke and alone. <laughs> you yeah. know, and that's what we find funny. And I don't know if that's a kind of cruelty in itself. Yeah, they're always doomed, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Going back to the theme of accidental outcomes, I was going to talk a little bit about the idea of life on Mars, the, the fantasy idea of life on Mars. Oh, okay. Back in the day when we're just looking at Mars through telescopes, and we don't know. No one's been in space. We're talking like the end of the 19th century. Right. No one's been in space. Like, we don't know what's out there. We right. don't know what's beyond our own atmosphere. So this idea of there being life on Mars, you can trace back to an astronomer called Percival Lowell, oh, okay. who was around, yeah, sort of turn of the century. I think he was born in 1860s, lived into the early part of the 20th century. And... He observed Mars. In fact, he was a pioneer of observatories. Right. Like, he had what seems like a very simple and obvious idea now. Right. Build observatories on very high up places. Okay. To get the clearest view of the galaxy. And then, and then was he just um, someone who's incredibly impassioned by it? Was he, like, uh, a very wealthy... He, he was, a philanthropist, yeah. almost. That's... Like a, Exactly right. Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah, he, right. He, he was not a professional astronomer. He was a wealthy astronomy enthusiast. Oh, okay. Who had the money to build his own observatory. Right. So he built an observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona, on a mountain. Was he American then? Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. he was from Washington. Yeah, and so people hadn't done that before. People hadn't thought to build observatories in really high up places. Oh, right, okay. So he kind of pioneered that. Right. 
And it was also at the, at the time um, telescope technology was really changing and you were get, be able to get much bigger, more powerful telescopes right. that enabled you to see more detail. Kind of like HD, like the yeah. standard definition, yeah. the high definition. At the time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so what he observed when he was looking at Mars, he had a particular fascination with Mars. And what he observed were what he described as the canals of Mars. He right. saw these all these lines tracing across Mars that seemed to emanate from the polar ice caps. Right. And from that, he developed this theory that once upon a time, there used to be a great civilization on Mars and that these canals that he could see were the, were the remains of this civilization that they had been built tracing out from the polar ice caps to irrigate the planet, basically. Wow, okay. And God. there were... That must have been like for it's him. It must have been like, wow, like, oh my God, like I've got this mega telescope and I can see canals on Mars. Yeah. How exciting and mind blowing that would have been. Because I think this idea of like, are we the only life in the universe is a long running one, isn't it? Ever yeah. since people looked to the stars. You know, so that must have been like, it must have blew his, blew his mind. Yeah, and there were other astronomers who also saw these canals on Mars. But then interestingly, there were other astronomers astronomers who try as they might couldn't see them the believers in the canals would explain that away as well you know various atmospheric conditions or the telescope you're using you know they had an explanation for that well you have to look at flat earthers to see how everyone has an ex <laughs> yeah, yeah, explanation yeah. for something but so that theory that there might be that there might be life on mars or that there had been ancient civilizations if it wasn't for his ideas around that which persisted for quite some time and although not everyone bought into them they weren't laughed out of the place so 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 what was he seeing then? Why 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 was he seeing canals and other people weren't? What they think is that it was an optical illusion and essentially what he was seeing was a reflection of the blood vessels in his own eye. Oh no. Which is so sad, isn't oh, it? Oh, poor he was, guy. He was basically looking at himself. Right. God, it's almost like yeah. narcissus like narcissus looking into the lake. Yeah. You know the the story and he looks into the lake, uh late narcissist and then falls into it and the, the lake was like oh so sad because it loved seeing itself back in the reflection of his eye and 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 what did that do to his reputation then I mean basically he was then laughed out of the astronomical community laughed out of the telescope room yeah <laughs> like... yeah and he, he went he went a bit mad he had kind of a breakdown he had a nervous breakdown right later in life oh well because he kind of felt like he had answered the question is there life outside of the outside of us and then had been proven God, that's quite sad isn't it it was a bit of a sad ending it's not a happy ending right. for his, his story right um Although I think there is some positive, there there are some like happy accidents and outcomes, and actually one of them is Pluto. He had he posited the theory that there's a tenth planet before Pluto had been discovered. Right. In his lifetime, he never found it, but when they did find it, it was at the observatory he'd built. So oh, right. after, okay. he was posthumously proved right that right. Pluto was did exist. There was a tenth planet. Right, right. Although it, you know, later got demoted from being a planet, didn't it? But he was right. You know, he'd he had said that there was this tenth planet out there. He couldn't prove it. He didn't find it in his lifetime, but when they did find it, it was with his telescope at his observatory. Oh right, interesting. And Pluto was part in part named after him, the PL Percival Lowell. Oh, that's why we call so it that's Pluto. Why it's Pluto, yeah. I always feel so sorry for people who get proved these things after they've died. What an interesting kind of journey, but also the whole life on Mars thing. I mean, he sort Which of inspired all of that. He totally did. Without his ideas of life on Mars, you wouldn't have had... H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. You wouldn't have had Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles, right. which actually references canals on Mars. Right. And it actually wasn't until the 1960s that it was concretely proved that there's no life on Mars. Right, right. Okay. So it was a, that idea was yeah, plausible yeah. for a while. It certainly gave life to a lot of creative ideas and fantasy visions of Mars. Yeah. That way, those ideas came from his seed. And yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it, how, like, uh, you know, as Bob Ross would say, there's, there, there are no mistakes, there's only happy accidents. How interesting, because 
you know, there really is setting the seed for so much science fiction, you know, years before, really, isn't it? And Martians. Um, Martians. Martians, yeah. yeah. They're kind of the first extraterrestrials, really, that kind of... And, and it underpins so much of our kind of modern-day culture, really, when, when you think about it, of mm. the sort of, you know, 20th century. And, like, you know, people are still trying to find life on Mars because I guess it's the most convenient planet or or the planet that is is sort of reachable i found it interesting a few years ago with the satellite footage that they were pinging back that people kind of were convinced there was some sort of like giant skeleton like a giant skeleton on mars that oh yeah you know, within yeah, the yeah. pixels you could kind of see this but you know that's just a kind of phenomenon 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 uh, I always love uh, the way Americans say phenomenon. 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 You know, it's just a complete coincidence. But yeah. it did look like something like out of Geiger or something, from my memory. Like yeah, I, I vaguely remember that as well. Almost like an elephant kind of dude, skeleton dude. Yeah. Maybe I'm just thinking of Prometheus now. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah. I had this book as a kid called Someone Else is on Our Moon. And it was kind of riding the wave, and and I realised now it was riding the wave of sort of chariots of the gods, you know, right. and the success of that kind of stuff. And this book had lots of black and white photos of the surface of the moon, and you know, to the untrained eye, it looks like a grey desert. But to this author, it was like, look, if you look here, and he would mark things on the maps. Here's here's the hangar entrance to the moon base, right. you know. <laughs> right. I don't know who I can't remember now I just looked at the as a kid I looked at the pictures more than I read the text yeah. so I'm not sure who he thought the people were on the moon <laughs> right right but he definitely had lots of photographic evidence that someone was right 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 but essentially it's just shadows and seeing what you want to see I love the, I love the idea that maybe he's like in the studio like we're in now and he's kind of making these books with his tinfoil hat on <laughs> just really like going into it like look yeah. you see here and like probably imagining it all and um, and then yeah. just making like a living selling that to a publisher <laughs> just like was that a, was that a kid's book was it no 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 oh right no, it right an it, was adult, a, it was an adult, it was an adult book, book. Uh, but you were reading it as a kid right, yeah right. yeah 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 I read a lot of adult books when I was a kid <laughs> right, yeah, right. yeah I just loved you know I loved anything science fiction as a kid someone else is on our moon <laughs> who who well I don't even care who because I just want to see the pictures yeah 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 and so I yeah. you know and I would fantasize it's a bit like you know looking at clouds and seeing yeah. pictures in clouds if you look at a picture of rocks you'll yeah. start to see patterns yeah yeah of course that's of a human course. thing isn't it you, humans see themselves in whatever they look at they yes. find patterns humans find patterns yeah 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 that yeah. reflect their own themselves in some way yeah 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 that's kind of um, it's quite a quint that's kind of yeah quite a quintessential thing about being human isn't it they isn't isn't like didn't, didn't they find out that dolphins do it as well or something or octopus really? do it or something I don't know maybe I'm completely making that up but you know I like the idea yeah 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 there's something something about like a level of intelligence to be able to sort of recognize see i've just got now this image, of, image of an octopus holding one of those 3d pictures under <laughs> like can I just just focus through it look through it it's a sailboat it's a, it's a sailboat look, look oh my god do you know what um funny enough i bought one of those um 3d books uh, by one of my favourite um, erotic artists, and it's an okay. erotic 3D magic eye book. Yeah, um, it's awful. <laughs> can you see anything? I've no, you can't. I've never seen an image in one of those. Oh, can you not? No, oh, I yeah, I can do it. I can do all. it. So I can see the images. You know all that kind of 3D kind of like mush. It's just like it's just like pixelated mush, isn't yeah. it? Um, yeah. It's like the most horrendous wallpaper that yeah. you could ever see. Well, imagine that. But strangely, like in a weird kind of 90s VR lawnmower man way, um, those sort of weirdly raise up onto like another level. Right. And then you see like a cutout almost. But there might be like other levels, a bit like a 3D stereoscopic kind of like, you know, like the red, blue. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And it then is. if the lines are closer together or further apart, it gives layers of depth. So you kind of like have that on like several planes and it would wow. be like very chunky pixelated so like you can imagine that but as an erotic book 
Okay. I had to buy it. It was like 12 quid. Yeah. And I was like, I need to get yeah, that in my collection. Great. Because it's like, you know, someone like eating a banana, like a, like in a sexy way. But it's like horrendous 3D or that horrendous like 3D wallpaper. As, as, as one of my like favorite books in my collection of weird erotic yeah. book collection that I have. Do you yeah. have a weird erotic book collection? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course Ooh. I do. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm an <laughs> illustrator. I'm a comic book artist. Of course I do. Yeah. Harry Bush uh, is one of my favourite artists and he was kind of like a closeted... Is that a real name? Because that sounds like a fake name. It sounds like... A, it sounds, yeah, Harry Bush. Bush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's okay. his name, yeah. yeah. But he worked as an advertising artist and was complete closet gay guy in the sort of 50s, 60s. Um, but then would draw gay sort of scenes um, they have that kind of 50s American kind of look about them but I find it interesting because he was, he was closeted for his whole life so there's this kind of idea of repression and I think what I find interesting about the old erotica from the 60s and 70s and stuff is this kind of uh, for, for gay erotica there's this kind of um, underground kind of idea push-pull of repression and the fact that it was illegal as well Mm. or illegal to publish it like one of my favorite artists Oliver Frey had to circumnavigate being not being able to show an erection and then suddenly he could show an erection legally and so there were just erections everywhere (laughs) (laughs) do you know what I mean like how many erections can we fit on the page right (laughs) you know just because like He, he really went to town he really went to town I mean he's an incredible artist and also you know, uh, so he his pen name was Zach, and then his professional name was Oliver Frey, and he did all of the um, uh, Crash magazine covers and computer game magazine cover artworks. You know, amazing uh, airbrush artist, mm. all hand drawn. And when you see the parallels, you know, you can see his professional work, and he was a professional uh, gay porn artist, very prolific. But it's interesting, you can see the style, that they're the same style, mm-hmm. but they're under two different names. Mm. I find it really fascinating. Yeah, also. yeah. Okay. God, who would have thought we would have gone into my whole erotic kind yeah. of uh, <laughs> book <laughs> archive <laughs> in the studio? Oh, we're going to have to talk some more about that another time. That's great. I love it. I was going to ask you about this, you know, the unexpected outcomes from something, if you had anything that related to that. Well, the only thing I can say is that I'm a complete unexpected outcome. That's the only thing I can say. <laughs> my whole sense of being, everything about me. It's only just because my mom couldn't, was told by the doctors she couldn't ever have any more children because she was oh. 40, over 40. So she, she was just like, she really wanted a third child, but she, she was told that medically she couldn't have any more children. Oh. And then um, I popped. I popped along and I think my dad went shit there goes my retirement because <laughs> I think he was about 45 at the time and then and then they raised an artist and I think he really thought oh shit that really does go my retirement <laughs> um, so yeah so so that was that I guess yeah that's the only thing I could think about unexpected outcome and what about you little incidents that don't seem significant at the time and then later you think oh well if that hadn't happened then I wouldn't have done this or gone there or you know my life would have turned out completely differently that is the whole essence of everyone's journey life is just yeah life is a series of unexpected outcomes yeah, yeah essentially isn't it yeah funny enough though i remember when i had a gallery um back in 2010 i had a pop-up gallery for a year and um this woman walked in to my gallery on a Sunday um, and she was a bit unsteady on her feet and then she asked me for if to, she came in and she went uh, I'll have a latte thanks <laughs> I was like okay what and she was like yeah I'll have a, a, a latte like yeah, and I was like, uh, "Sorry, I, I I don't have any coffee." I, she, she was like, "I got to say, I've, I remember this gallery. Is it the one on yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the Octopus Gallery?" And there's nothing about that space that looked like there's no tables and chairs in there. No, no, there was nothing cafe-like no, no, no. about it. No, it was literally like art on the wall and my desk and a chair for me to sit on that yeah. I was sat on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
There was nothing cafe-like about that. Place. Yeah, so she was like, oh, she thought it was a coffee shop. Uh, she wasn't She wasn't very... Hey, it's Brighton. It's Brighton, you know, yeah. Just sit on the floor. <laughs> yeah, coffee, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, yeah. Right, that's how we roll in Brighton. Yeah, yeah, we do abstract coffee here. Where... Chairs are so fucking passe. Well, yeah, and you don't even need a coffee. You can just imagine... I'll, I'll imagine making you a coffee, and you can pay me five pounds for yeah. an imaginary thought of abstract coffee. While you sit on a chair that isn't a chair... I I've sat on so many, I've sat in Brighton fucking coffee shops. I've sat on radiators, <laughs> toilets, <laughs> bean bags, tea chests, anything but a coffee chair. Coffee sacks. I've just, sat on coffee sacks. Yeah, a lot. coffee sacks. Yeah. Some people might like that. I just want a fucking chair. <laughs> just give me a chair. And a fucking table. <laughs> and take your pretentious fucking nonsense and don't bother me with it. <laughs> <laughs> Should we just leave the podcast there? <laughs> Tune in for next week. <laughs> but but the crazy thing was is that it was such an unexpected day. She was a bit unsteady on her feet. She was she looked a bit like she was going through something, and um, she looked a bit confused. And I just said to her, "You're right," and she wasn't. And I closed the gallery uh, and I said. I've actually got a coffee uh, upstairs, and I and I went upstairs and made her a coffee, and we had a chat, and she spent the, the afternoon with me in the gallery, and uh, she actually came in a couple of days later and said, "Oh, thanks so much. Things weren't going well. She was on on a bit of a a life moment, and I wonder what what could have happened on that mm. day if I had if I hadn't have done that. You know, yeah. she just needed to be with someone that day." You know, that's a lot what my job is like, you know, running a community centre and lots of lost souls wander into this community centre. Really? Interesting. And, and that happens a lot. You know, if if they look in a really bad way, I'll do the same thing as you and I'll make them a cup of tea right. or ask them if they want a glass of water and we'll have a chat. They just needed a bit of human contact to oh, just okay. get them through that hour. And that's interesting, actually, that um, because, you know, you're trained as a psychiatric nurse, aren't you? Yeah. So you you have um, a natural. Not only do you have a natural empathy, but you also have a training to be able to deal with people like that. The training was more to do with kind of people in having really acute psychiatric episodes. Right. Okay. So yeah, I don't I don't get freaked out by the maddest of people. Don't phase me at all. Right. I feel quite at home around really mad people. Right. Okay. okay. I find it quite comforting. That was really lovely of you to have locked up the shop and. Made her a cup of coffee. Made her a cup of coffee and yeah. stayed with her. I think that's a maybe that's a good. That's a nice unexpected outcome to end on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been around the houses today. Yeah, we have. We really have, haven't we? Sitting in your strange loft. <laughs> yeah, we've been in 1960s London with David Bowie and yeah. Life on Mars. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've been on the Japanese TV trip. We've been in uh, per- Percival Lovell's... Uh, Percival Lovell's Observatory, yeah. looking at life on Mars, and lots of unexpected outcomes. And a nice... Yeah, I like the way that your anecdote brings it back to the here and now after the strange trip that we've been on. <laughs> a nice unexpected outcome for that lady that day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, for people listening, you know, you know, I wonder what unexpected outcomes you're going to have this week. Uh, and maybe try and sort of notice your unexpected outcomes a bit more. Cheers. Cheers. Rubber baby buggy bumpers, rubber baby buggy bumpers, rubber. I used to do singing. Oh, did you? Singing tape. I used to have a singing tape, and that was um, yeah, that was one of the things you had to do. But it's a like a tongue twister. Rubber baby buggy bumpers, rubber baby buggy bumpers, rubber baby buggy bumpers, rubber baby buggy. Oh my god, you're really good at it. You look really mental when you're doing it as well. You look like you know, like the bit in um Total Recall where she's like two weeks, two weeks, and then the head comes off and he throws it. One of my favourite bits in any movie. That is like the best bit of movie history. Arnold Schwarzenegger in a kind of. 
<laughs> strange kind of like haughty lady suit <laughs> that malfunctions yeah. and then he throws it because it's also a bomb yeah, yeah. I mean how great can you get that was cool. yeah <laughs> It's a good movie. It's oh, fun. I want to make a movie now, but you going rubber baby bugger bugger <laughs> like over and over, and then your head explodes. <clears throat> I'll pitch it to Netflix. Yeah. <laughs>